Ian Livingston CBE is calling for schools to embrace games-based learning and digital creativity. Ian has had a successful career building on his passion for games and gamebooks. To address the growing skills gap, Ian has partnered with the Aspirations Academy Trust. They've teamed up to launch the Livingston Academy Bournemouth, which will be rooted in science, technology, engineering, arts and maths, otherwise known as STEAM. Ian joins me today to share with us what happens when a games-obsessed entrepreneur meets education thought leaders and how they are preparing to upskill the next generation. Welcome, Ian, to the show. Hello, nice to meet you. I am very excited to um, explore this topic with you today as you have um, such a stellar career and experience in this whole area of uh, games and the creative industry. And that's, I guess, where I wanted to start with you, Ian, today, if you don't mind. Um, If you could talk to us a little bit about the size of the challenges that are facing the industry in this increasingly and now in this post-pandemic or currently pandemic digital world that we're all having to exist in? Uh, well, you know, the, as we all know, the world is being transformed by technology. I mean, the speed of which is accelerating uh, as a result of the current global pandemic. And again, as we all know, digital technology plays you know, a huge part in everything we do, from you know what we buy to the way we communicate, as we're doing right now. To where mm-hmm. we work and shop and, and entertain ourselves, and so, for my mind, we have to create a a workforce that is in sync with the twenty first century. So it's really important to my mind that you know, that children are able to operate in this new world order. So we need we need to move them really effectively from the passenger seat of technology, where they just consume content, to the driver's seat to allow them to create content. So everything they can do, they kind of it becomes second nature. In fact, you know, digital literacy should almost be seen as a par with literacy and numeracy, as as we know in traditional education. Yeah, no, I agree. I think you know there is already a sense of, you know, where these younger generations are coming through, and a lot of this is already. Um, organic and natural to them so it makes sense that we would take that step for, further and empower them to be able to to do the to instead of just as you say consuming it is to actually to create it um, and this yeah. has been a topic that you have actually looked at for quite some time um, as you actually co-authored a report on behalf of the government uh, it was the 2011 next gen report um, that was to look at education differently to identify gaps could you could you talk to us a little bit about that? Sure. Uh, it was back in 2010. I whinged to uh, the culture minister at the time, Ed <laughs> Vasey, who was very yeah. supportive of the video games industry about the fact that we couldn't hire enough um, software engineers, artists, and animators of a high enough quality um, for the video games industry, let alone all the other industries were crying out for the similar skills. And yet at the same time, there was an awful lot of young people in particular uh, out of work. So again, mm-hmm. there was a disconnect for what they were learning at school and, and further education compared to what the workforce and workplace actually required. So he said, well, that's all very good. Uh, why don't you write a review? And he, to his credit, um, uh, 
got NASA on board um, and who supplied me with two incredible uh, researchers and um, and the funding to do seven Ipsos Murray studies uh, to get data because you can you can you need empirical data to prove mm-hmm. uh, your case so I'm just whinging about it so um, <laughs> but it always starts with a good wind <laughs> it starts with <laughs> a whinge to win yeah <laughs> and so we uh we, we, we conducted the report and we got, we made 20 recommendations. I mean, we found that secondary education wasn't the main problem. It was, it was what children were learning at school. And mm-hmm. ICT, as it was then, was largely a strange hybrid of office skills, boring kids to death with Word, PowerPoints and Excel, uh, mm-hmm. using other people's software, giving no insight how to create their own software at all. And yeah. we our two main, I guess our two main recommendations in, in next gen were one to have computer science uh, in the national curriculum as an essential discipline, and to have mm-hmm. the arts to count and the EBAC because the arts we found was being marginalised. It wasn't a necessity to be part of the league, um, <clears throat> you know, the league table assessment. Yeah. So, Oh, he's that. Oh, Coming to say hello to us, it's fine. I didn't realise he was in the room. <laughs> hey, Pedro. Just... <laughs> Pedro, out, mate. Come on, Pedro. <laughs> Come on, Pedro. He obviously agrees, Ian. <laughs> this, is the, um, this is the beauty of, of this new world, is all the, the vulnerability that we show. I didn't that... realise he was yeah. in the room. He's gone now. He has very strong thoughts about the arts, obviously. <laughs> <laughs> he's a big art. He's pretty good at painting. He agreed. <laughs> yeah. Love it. Pedro's paintings. You were talking about the arts being marginalised, so you felt it was important that it was, uh, and it wasn't being comparted of the league tables. Yeah, so our, our two recommendations, as I said, was to uh, have computer science on the National Curriculum as essential discipline and to have arts included in the EBAC because um, the the arts weren't counting as, as they should for parts of the assessment of schools. And 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 that's what our main recommendations were. And so we handed it back to, to government. But, you know, they didn't do very much, really, until uh, Eric Schmidt, who was then chairman of Google, actually referenced NextGen in, in his MacTaggart lecture in Edinburgh uh, the following year. So then mm-hmm. government started to pay a little bit more interest in it. And of course, it wasn't just us, the Royal Society and everybody was saying the same thing. So yeah. there's a, a kind of national momentum. And long story short, um, you know, the curriculum changed in 2014 uh, when ICT became computing and, and therefore children had an opportunity to <clears throat> learn how to code and, 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 learn and become more digitally literate. Uh, I mean, this was nothing new. I mean, it should have never been in such a state, ICT, mm. as it was then, because in the in the 1980s, the BBC Micro was a cornerstone of computing in schools, and, and everybody had a Sinclair Spectrum, an affordable, programmable computer. And that, in effect, was one of the contributors to how video games became such an important industry to the UK, because as a naturally creative nation, look at our film, our fashion, our music, Mm-hmm. Uh, and now, of course, our games, you put you put a, an affordable, programmable computer into the hands of a creative person, hey, presto, video games. So you know, mm-hmm. these computers should be seen as a device in which to create, not an end in themselves. So we wanted people, as I said, to be using, uh, to learn how to create, not just to consume. And 
like if we think about if you're saying that was happening in the 80s and even before that obviously Britain has such a stellar um, history in the world of computing um, what what happened between the 80s and the noughties that that took us back do you think I mean I'm a 90s uh, uh, secondary girl so I right. I was the girl that was on the computer you know doing the word processing and the fancy yes. word processing suite didn't learn a thing about uh, c- computers no, well, the, 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 the problem was, I think there was, a, there was a few problems. One, I think the schools were worried about accessing the, the internet and, and mm. also risking um, breaches of, of their defences digitally. Mm-hmm. They were, yeah. they, and then Microsoft was very willing to give everybody you know, office as part of their as a provision for the for schools, so it it kind of just moved slowly from from creating own technology to using other people's software, and that had a mm. really detrimental effect on creativity. Unfortunately, you know, most kids were you know, a digitally native thing; they're brought up on on stuff. They don't need to spend more than a couple of weeks learning how to do PowerPoint or Word, yeah. and they certainly yeah. don't need an examination a, a year later. <laughs> Definitely not. Um, so y- your report um, that you wrote in, back in 2011, that did influence educational policy, as you've said, and it changed um, in 2014 the curriculum to computer science. Um, so we're now um, six years on beyond that change um, and 10 years on beyond the report. So can you talk to us about some of the impacts that you're now seeing filter through the education system as a result? Well, um, it's been kind of, Good in one sense that people have understood the problem that needed to be addressed, i.e. to get children creating again in, in the digital format. But unfortunately, the way um, assessment works in education, it's had a kind of a negative effect on it because it seems to me that DFE wants to have a standardized metric by which they can judge one person against another. With a, mm-hmm. with a standardized test and that means you have to kind of strip out anything that's subjective or personal therefore being able to create content you know make a game or build a website or do something in robotics or whatever they might do creatively as part of a project cannot be assessed as part of the examination so the examination itself is quite dry and kind of really misses the point and the opportunity to inspire children to be digitally creative so yeah, hopefully we'll get there. <laughs> it's it's a it's a great shame that this great mm. opportunity is being missed. Yeah, I suppose it's like anything that we, uh, you and I both live in technology, and it's that iterating. But it's the pace that I think the education system iterates is maybe five or ten years behind. Um, but yes, look, looking forward. Hopefully they will do. Um, something more uh, creative and innovative in that space. But let's talk yeah, about you. you think, what... the, the thing is we want children to be work-ready and world-ready. Mm. You know, robots and artificial intelligence are going to take all the jobs that involve any kind of repetition. So there's no point in teaching children like robots because they won't be able to compete with the real thing. Yeah. So, we, you know, we've got to make kids to, you know, the ability to give them the ability to think and problem-solving and critical thinking and creativity skills. And... And they're inspired by that because you know a lot of children love learning but hate school, and yet we tend to kind of suppress that creativity, all in the cause of creating this standardised metric which we call an examination. 
so it's a kind of you know you're able you're not you're less able you can go to university you can't but it's yeah. that standardized test is crazy because we're not standardized human beings people no we're all very very unique and it's that un- that uniqueness that sets us apart as you say from machines um so the report obviously we know what the what the government the centralized government did but what did it lead you to do i'd be interested to know about what path that put you on <laughs> well that's that's uh that's a story in itself yeah, I thought having achieved the objective to get computing on the curriculum, that would be it. But of course, <laughs> um, some of my friends and colleagues said, oh, that's all very well. Surely you now need a flagship school to uh, <laughs> to uh, put into place what you've been whinging on about for the last few years. So that was like a red rag to a bull to me because I, I can never resist a challenge. So mm-hmm. I set off um, to open, set up a foundation, the Livingstone Foundation, with a view to opening my own my own school. And obviously, very quickly realised that I wasn't cut out to run schools. You know, I make games and video games and board games, and I'm very happy and able to run those kind of companies. But I've got no place running schools. So um, what I did end up, end up doing was um, teaming up with Aspirations Academies Trust. Uh, and I'd met uh, Steve and Paula Kenning at uh, an education event. And I think they'd heard some of my, uh, or read about some of the things I'd been saying. Uh, they'd attended one of my talks and they said, we should do something together. And that's how the the relationship started in that um, uh, now Aspirations Academies Trust will be running the Livingstone Academy in, in, uh, in Bournemouth. So we know now a little bit about Steve and Paula's experience of, of their um, journey in, in running schools. But let's pause and learn a little bit about why um, they may want to uh, partner with you and adopt this pedagogy that you mentioned. And also why the government actually asked you to take the lead on the next gen report. You know, I've read and, and watched quite a few um pieces of uh, research on, on you Ian, and you've had an incredible career in the physical and digital games industry um, with some of the most iconic games of our times and I, I wondered if you could give us a, a bit of a whistle-stop tour of your career. <laughs> you sit in comfortably, it could take some time. Uh, I'll try and be as brief as I can. It started back in 1975 when I started a company called Games Workshop with two old school friends. Um, we we met back up in London, having been at school in Altrincham. I mean, we met back up in London, and had pretty boring jobs. And decided to start our own games company because we were all games hobbyists. Mm-hmm. Uh, long story short, we got the publishing rights for Dungeons and Dragons in 1975, and we opened our first Games Workshop shop in 1978, and built up Games Workshop. Uh, retail and, and then later Warhammer and White Dwarf magazine and Citadel miniatures and in the mid 80s Steve and I um, began writing uh, solo game books fighting fantasy game books and these were books in which you are the hero embracing game elements applying a, a game system to a branching narrative story the first one the Warlock of Firetop Mountain um, was effectively a a, a book in which you, the reader, are the hero. Um, you make choices. The book is broken up into 400 references and you have to navigate your way through. Simplistically, do you turn left or turn right? Mm-hmm. Do you attack the monster or run away? And there are puzzles to solve and maps you have to make to make sure you don't get lost. And ultimately, 
um, you get through the, the adventure and defeat the warlock. Now, what that taught me more than anything else is that the power of giving agency to the user was was huge. Normally, books are a passive experience. The reader mm-hmm. may or may not relate to the hero's activities. And, but in a fighting fantasy game book, you are the, the main hero and you make the choices. And that agency is very empowering. So children were really enjoying reading again and uh, got a whole generation of children reading in the 1980s. You know, the whole series has since sold over 20 million copies globally. And giving that agency was the thing that really set them apart from, from other books. And whilst they were criticised at launch because they were saying, you know, this is, is this a game? Is it a book? It's not a real book. <laughs> um, positions were sent into Penguin Books saying the parents wanted them banned because they kind of spark in the imagination of their children too much because they were set in worlds of monsters and magic killing ghouls <laughs> and demons was obviously going to be, have a bad effect yes. on them. Um, they want the, and the Evangelical Alliance published an eight-page warning guide. I'm saying because you interact with ghouls and demons, you're going to get oh, possessed by the devil, etc., etc. Yeah. At the same time, teachers were realizing that we're great for reluctant readers because the that's empowerment, the choice, because it moved from a passive experience to an interactive experience. It was, a, and it was good for um, computational thinking and kind of critical path analysis and creative writing and. And it improved literacy. It was subsequently proven mm-hmm. by nearly twenty percent. Hey, Dad, what's a sarcophagus? Um, and <laughs> as, as they asked their parents what these long words were, uh, and they were seen as a great educational thing. So I thought, there's an example where games really does have a positive impact. It goes mm. way beyond entertainment. You cannot get through a game without problem solving. It's impossible. You cannot progress. Yeah. Children or adults learn intuitively when they play, and there's no sense of failure uh, like an exam where it's a binary, yes, you got it right, you're, you're able, B, you got it wrong, you're less able. A game encourages you to try again. You're not punished for making a mistake. And so over, t- over time, everybody can succeed, i.e. everyone can feel good about being a winner. And yeah. games like Minecraft encourage incredible creativity building these effectively like digital lego these wonderful 3d architectural worlds and sharing them with their friends and children can learn in context um interesting facts like you can apply the heat of a furnace to silica sand and make glass and that child will take that glass and put it in their environments that they're building Mm -hmm. and that stays with them that sort of hands-on learning is really relevant and games like rollercoast tycoon is effectively a management simulation Children will learn how to construct the rides, so they'll understand the physics of the rides, and then they'll have to staff the, the, the rides that they've built, and then they have to do a pricing policy. And if they do that all right, then the virtual customs will come. And if they don't, then they tweak the parameters until they get it right over time. So again, everyone becomes a successful um, at what they're doing. So this is effectively... a multidisciplinary cross-curricular management simulation and so again games act as a contextual hub for learning it's not a single siloed uh, subject which can or can mean probably is going to bore a lot of kids and as mm-hmm. as uh, they're taught at about subjects they don't particularly relate to 
But yeah. if they're actively engaged in learning in a cross-curricular way, doing effectively a project by by using games-based learning in the classroom, that adds that sort of dimension of of authenticity and context, which is often lacking in in the classroom, to my mind. So again, games is an exemplar of that 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 very that very thing. And if you think about you know pilots when when we're ever allowed to fly again, think <laughs> about that pilot how they learned to fly. Would you prefer that they learned how to, to fly by reading a book? Um, what do you do now? Is it move the aileron fifteen degrees, <laughs> or or using simulation software, which is effectively a game without the scoring? So yeah. you know, there are so many good things about games that people never think about as being going way beyond entertainment, and in fact, a great learning tool. Yeah, I mean, I think you just said a really lovely line there about um, to park your prejudice, and I think that's um, I think that's just an incredible thing because. And, you know, you've just described so many other sort of skills that employers, people, life learning, you know, that we need. We need computational thinking. We need improved literacy. We need problem solving. That's these are all the skills that will set us apart and allow us to thrive in this new sort of digital world that we're that we're living in. Exactly. Um, and, you know, let's talk about the. um Sort of the, the the so you did the the fantasy uh, the fantasy uh, game playing uh, books, and then um, you went on to move into the digital world as you were looking for new opportunities. So yeah. tell us a little bit about that, and I, I'd still want to link this back to the learning. Um, but Lara Croft. You know, I don't know anybody in the world who doesn't know doesn't know of Lara Croft um, in in many of her um, in her many of her genres. But that was such a landmark moment for games. Can you yeah. tell us, first of all, how did you come across it, and then why was that such a moment in time for your industry? Well, when I sold out a games workshop in uh, the early nineties. I wanted to move pretty quickly into video games. I'd already designed uh, the lead product for a startup in the, in 1985. Startup was called Domark. Um, I designed their lead product, which is called um, uh, Eureka. And I, when I exited from workshop, I joined Domark and invested some money and became vice chairman of the company and, and looked at this new challenge of getting into into the digital games industry as opposed to the analog games industry. And um, long story short, again, we put four companies together, which we floated on the London Stock Exchange in '95, and that created this created this company called IDOS Interactive, IDOS PLC. And um, we had an opportunity to buy a, another UK company called Centergold. And when I did a tour of all the studios, um, I drove up eventually to to Derby, where to visit Core Design, and they showed me all their games in development and the last one the very showed me was i guess you could say in a corny way it was love at first sight um <laughs> there was this incredible character on the screen jumping around solving puzzles adventuring and that character of course was lara croft but this was mm-hmm. the master effectively in gaming history traditionally uh, games were side scrolling 2d side scrolling games where the character moved from left to right there was no depth and here's one of the very first characters um, with a 3D character moving into the screen, into the 3D world. So you, you felt like you're really in control of a, of a, of a movie, as it were, mm-hmm. albeit the graphics yeah. were not movie quality. 
and doing but the game had you know a fantastic graphics great technology puzzles adventuring combats and of course the character Lara Croft possibly one of the first and obviously the most well-known female character in in the games in a, in mm-hmm. a video game and I guess all the stars were aligned, so we bought the company. Idos had bought the company that was developing it, Core Design, and we launched um, the first Tomb Raider in uh, October 1996. And we had no idea how successful it was going to be. I think we thought we'd sell 100,000 units, and we sold over a million and a half units in the first year. Yeah, and the franchise that it's grown to be and continues. Yeah. TV, yeah, incredible. Huge, um, yeah. Two movies, licensing, merchandising. You know, Laura mm-hmm. has survived the test of time, like James Bond. You know, she's first came. You know, it's nearly twenty-five years since the first one. If you're enjoying the podcast, simply hit the like and subscribe button on your favorite podcast platform. If you have the time, leave us a review. You can do that really easily by going to ratemypodcast.com forward slash fast forward. From a consumer point of view, you can absolutely see, um, you know, the incredible journey that that's been on. But from a business point of view and an industry and skills point of view, what new level of um, sort of what nuance did that then lay on to the new demand on skills that was going to come through your industry? And how has that, if we take that back to education, where does that go then within the school system? Well, again, it was that... Um you know, it was difficult to get you know, software engineers, artists, and animators of a high enough quality uh, at scale. And so, as a company, we were having to hire quite a lot of um, software engineers from overseas. Uh, at the same time, urging you know, the, the, the universities and, and schools to move the, the children and, and, and students from as I said earlier, from consumption to creativity. And mm-hmm. so, you know, that, that was an even greater demand now. I mean, that, that, that problem still exists today. There are, you know, games industry, the video games industry in the UK is a great British success story. Um, and yet, you know, access to finance and access to, to talent still remains challenging. You know, I think it's what's interesting there is that we're nearly so 1996. You launched Tomb Raider, and we're then 25 years on, and those are still the biggest concerns that employers are 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 saying that they have when it comes to young people is the lack of of talent that is out there or the yeah. skills that they have. It is. They, so you know, they can play a game, they can't make a game. They can look through a, a website, but they can't build a website. Mm-hmm. So ICT, as was taught, was effectively teaching children how to read, but not how to write. And that's where mm-hmm. the disconnect was. People couldn't see the difference between consumption and creativity. And yet they knew they c- couldn't build a game, even though they enjoyed playing it. And I think not just for the games industry, you know, it's for every industry where you're designing a jet propulsion engine or a, a, a new car or fighting cybercrime. Code is at the heart of everything. Yeah. So it's it's something that has to be part, absolutely part of, of of the 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 school's agenda. Now, not everyone's going to become a coder, of course, they're not. But they need to understand how code works. 
Yeah. Um, you know, I, I can't actually code, but I know what good looks like in terms of, <laughs> of coders. And yeah. getting back to the game industry, if we're talking about what's going to happen in a post-COVID world, you know, we're, we're going to be increasingly inside a network society driven by technology and digital creativity. And the games industry is one of the very few success stories during this pandemic. You know, revenues are up uh, globally mm -hmm. and it's been business as usual for development as developers being able to transition to working from home using cloud-based development platforms. So there's, I don't know of any, I'm sure there might have been, but I don't know of any video games companies that have had to furlough their staff, staff because they're being able to carry on working as business as usual. So the content consumed is digital and the content being created is digital. Mm -hmm. So the video games industry effectively ticks all the right boxes for the post-COVID digital economy. You know, it's high tech, high skills, instant export story. The second it hits the App Store or Steam or digital console, it's probably 90% export story. It's regional. It doesn't, doesn't require it to be based in London. It's intellectual property creating. You know, its time has arrived, and yet a lot of people still think the games industry and these kind of weird digital industries they see them is somehow not a real industry and it absolutely is the future of of, of the digital economy yeah i think it feels like the game games industry the people that work within it are almost like you know you know lightning years ahead of the rest of us as we all try and catch up with you know the, the understanding how these things are, are interlinked it's almost intuitive to you but the rest of us need to to, to catch up with it um, well, I, but again looking at today's children they're born digital natives everything they do they interact with every they use prolific use of social media they're on mm -hmm. their devices a lot of time perhaps too long, too much for a lot of parents, understandably. Yeah. You have to have a balance yeah. in life. And so everything they do is interactive, and therefore they want their entertainment to be interactive. So Final Fantasy game books resonate with children because they're interactive, and of course video games uh, resonate with children mm -hmm. because they are interactive. It's this agency, this feeling of hands-on, I can do, and therefore, they want interactive education. They want to learn in an interactive way, where they can be part of a project, a team, um, involved in something where they can, their curiosity uh, can lead to their learning, rather than being a passive receptor of whatever is being given to them. So, you know, like it or not, you know, children prefer games to TV. Um, they prefer games to, to film. Um, you know, we're living in an interactive world. Embrace it. Yes. And I think maybe if we just really drill down into, you know, what you're talking about, that, you know, agency, that feeling of agency can do, which, you know, children um, experience through role play and strategic games. You know, when you apply that into the context of education and you apply it in the right way, so, you know, so that, you know, parents aren't concerned about them wasting time on, you know, you know, purposeless games. But when you take that concept into education, like what are the key critical work ready skills that children will come out with as a result of deploying that in an educational uh, setting? Well, uh, the Livingstone Academy, I hope children will, will, you know, we have to serve the national curriculum. There's no getting away from that, of course, yeah. and we're going to do that. But we're going to hopefully do it in a much more interesting and hands-on way. There'll be a lot of working with industry, a lot of projects, a lot of teamwork, a lot of collaboration, a lot of 
creativity, a lot of involving the arts to get them kind of given this hands-on experience and adding context to simulate real-world events and environments so children become immersed in their learning by taking control and you know the you know, the, the the World Economic Forum on children is talking about they need meta skills of problem solving, critical thinking, creativity. Those are the three most important things as far as the World Economic Forum are concerned. So we need to teach them to think. So if it encourages creativity and diverse thinking in children, give them the right digital making skills, inspire an entrepreneurial mindset by letting them fail and learn from their mistakes. You know, saying the Failure is just success. Success mm-hmm. is just, just success. Work in progress, and yeah. promote computational thinking and encourage them to collaborate. They might just become job makers rather than just job seekers. So it's this can-do attitude we want to do get into children. And it's and again, it's not just about digital creativity. It's this vocational, um, um, much more accent on on vocation rather than academic. Mm-hmm. You know, only 5% of us are going to end up being academics. So you know, most of us have to learn you know, vocational skills. So again, yeah. this this, this can-do, hands-on approach. So we want to have know-how on a par with knowledge. Or we want skills on a par with qualifications. So no matter what you go on to do when you're leaving schools, you feel you have abilities and skills to be able to meet the demands of this increasingly fast-changing world. Yeah. When you're when you're speaking about it, Ian, I get a sense of I mean, I f- when I reflect on the obviously the British schooling system versus the American one and the American one does embrace entrepreneurial kind of teaching a little bit more than we do. Has there been any kind of influences from other places in the world on your thinking around this? Uh, not really from, from around the world. I mean, I noticed it when I travel around the world, the differences in, in attitude from that's in, in the, the US. They have huge amounts of self-belief and we have tend to have self-doubt. Yeah. And, yes. and that in turn then has an impact on risk. And then in schools, when you tell people you're wrong, you don't want to take risk because you don't want to be wrong. Yeah. And that is a negative thing that doesn't need to be part of the classroom I don't think and if people do make mistakes embrace that you know going back to the games analogy Angry Birds wasn't Rovio the developers first game it was their 51st game you know they learned from their previous games they failed fast they iterated and and took their learnings and ended up with a huge hit on their hands so we should allow for the fact that you know you can't run before you've fallen a few times and mm-hmm. um, and uh, but not punish people for making mistakes don't let them make feel like a failure because that really yeah. crushes their risk-taking mindset and their entrepreneurial capabilities i think so when we think about the entrepreneurial mindset that these children are growing and developing in school and you know the purpose of that is that they will go out into the world and we will see new opportunities um, in the world of business and if we look at where that is you've mentioned there you know video games has been one of the growth success stories in uh, the pandemic it has continued to grow uh, globally um, so for anyone out there that's thinking about starting out in that industry what advice would you have for for founders 
who would be thinking about considering the games industry? Well, in the digital world, there's probably never been a better time, you know, forgetting the pandemic for one second, if we can. But <laughs> normally, there was never, there would never be a better time than than today. Uh, in in the days of the early days of Tomb Raider, for example, we used, we used to have to build physical inventory because you had to build optical discs that's then plugged into a console. Um, but and you had to buy those discs in shops. So you had to manage the supply chain, building inventory, managing that supply chain, and sometimes getting inventory back if it remained unsold. But now with games as a service and products as a service beyond the game industry, you're not having to build physical inventory. So you can access mm-hmm. a global market through the internet and monetize that global market through goods and services that you can create. So any child, no matter how disadvantaged they might be at the offset, is mm-hmm. able to create this content and access this global market, which in the analog world they would never have been able to do because yeah. of the money required up front, the capital required to build physical stock and ship them around the world, navigating that supply chain, dealing with 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 retailers and, and yeah. And all that entailed, the skill set that entailed, but now they can go direct to the consumer in many instances, and and create a very successful business. So, from that point of view, you'd be able to transition from from learning to becoming an entrepreneur quite quickly. Now, of course, there are huge amounts of competition and reasons not to do something but I mean if you're driven in my case for, by a passion for games you should at least try um, you know the you know when I started off to start off games workshop it was never for money I wanted to turn my passion of playing games into some kind of business and I learned the business skills along that journey but my passion mm-hmm. was for the content itself so if you're wanting to start a games company, there are many things that you should do. I would recommend anyone to perhaps start a, 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 another company first to learn effectively your craft at somebody else's expense. But as soon <laughs> yep. as humanly possible, start your own company and bootstrap it and get some scars on your Mac back and not being afraid of failure. As I said earlier, failure is just success, work in progress and iterate and move on and, and take your learnings, build your own technology and intellectual property and, and partner with people to do the jobs you can't or shouldn't be doing. And ultimately mm-hmm. you'll create a team. And once you have a team with different but complementary skills, you're likely to be successful. But do it for the right reason. If you don't yeah. love games, do something else. Find your own, your own passion. You know, you talk about this passion for board games and um, it's definitely something that has been something that has carried you through your entire life. And certainly it's carried me through the pandemic because myself and my uh, brother-in-law, my sister have bubbled together and we have played, you know, Monopoly, Muffin Time, you know, Cards Against Humanity, you know, but now the government you know, during the pandemic, when you need these games the most, the advice for for Christmas is not to not to play them because it'll reduce contact. What are your What are your views on the recent board game news? Well, I think it's a very bizarre <laughs> thing for the government to say that you shouldn't play board games because they are wonderful for social cohesion and and, and mm-hmm. entertainment in the home, 
And as long as you've obeyed the correct bubble criteria, there's absolutely no better way to spend a post-Christmas lunch than playing a board game. Um, yeah. I, you know, I've got a collection of over a thousand board games in 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 my house here, and we'll be playing board games uh, at Christmas <laughs> a lot. But I mean, again, it's part of the negativity that often surrounds games and not seeing their social value, their cultural impact, and obviously mm-hmm. their economic impact on, on, on the UK economy in a positive sense. And video games, I think, you know, slowly the 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 perception is, is, is moving in, in our favour. Um, I'm chairman of uh, Sumo Group, uh, PLC, based headquarters in, in Sheffield. And we've seen the popularity of games through sumo really increase in, in recent term in recent times and it wasn't that long ago when the world health organization warned of a kind of a gaming disorder right now they're talking about how games are bringing people together uh, mm-hmm. they can engage not just in playing but hanging out as a community inside games meeting people and playing with people inside games and they're seeing the the he- cohesive um, bringing together of people through a medium which we call video games. So, ball games and video games go beyond entertainment. They're huge fun. Uh, we learn through play, and we should Im- we should embrace them. You're never too young to start, and never too old to stop. If we can't yeah. play, we've lost our spirit. I think we learn through play. When we enter this world as babies, we interact with it. Playful and playing is in our DNA to learn. Now, last question. So a nasty one. <laughs> <laughs> this is a, a podcast that's dedicated to helping uh, people grow and develop their businesses and answering the challenges that keep them awake at night. So we always like to finish on some advice, Ian, for entrepreneurs. And bo- as we've already discussed throughout this whole podcast, podcast board and video games are very fierce competitive markets so what would your advice be to anyone that has one of those ideas that is thinking about bringing out a new product and how would you make it stand out uh when people i give quite a lot of talks to to young people about wanting to start their own video games company so maybe i could use it in that context and Mm. I always say, you know, there's, there's like 10 things I usually say to them. It's like, don't, obviously, don't be afraid of failure and learn yeah. from your mistakes and see that as a good thing rather than a bad thing. Um, they should retain ownership of their intellectual property. You know, so often as I've seen the case where you know, companies have had to trade away their IP for project finance and they end up being a work for hire. They don't realize the value of what they've actually created. Um, yeah. Yeah, ideas are cheap. That's the main thing I would say. It's the execution of the idea that's the hard bit. So there's no point in talking about what you're going to do forever and a day. Go out and do it. But if you do fail, see that as a as a as a plus. So you've got to try and also be dare to be different. You know, and be yourself and follow your heart. You know, I wanted to be a games maker, and everyone was saying, "What a stupid idea that was." Well, it wasn't. Um, if you're passionate about it, you're not bothered about criticism or, you know, we, you know, in the early days of Games Workshop, Steve Jackson and I had to sleep in a van for three months because we couldn't raise any money through traditional ways and we didn't have any money. You go to the bank manager and say, 
we've got this great game. It's called Dungeons and Dragons. You kill monsters and find treasure. You go these fantastic journeys of the mind. And he looked at us like a, a, a dog watching television. He had no understanding of what we were talking about. His head was moving all over the place. He couldn't get wait to get rid of us. But when you're driven by that passion, that's just, you know, it's funny. It's amusing. Mm-hmm. And you just move on and, and you make it happen. So the thing we didn't get was that investment. So I, I really would encourage people to get investment, you know, make yourself investor mm-hmm. ready. So people investing, you know, that you're able to execute on your ideas, not just giving a PowerPoint and saying, yeah, I hope to do it. You've got to show that sort of belief so you need to understand the business of creativity and understand business. And last but not least, enjoy what you do or do something else. Wonderful. Wonderful advice to finish on. Um, I've really enjoyed spending some time with you this afternoon learning more about the ambitions and the inspirational mission of the Academy. And we wish you all the success in the future with the school. Thank you very much indeed. It's been a delight. Fast Forward is a weekly interview podcast brought to you by Tech Manchester, an incubator for digital and creative startups in the Northwest. I'm your host, Patricia Keating. The podcast is produced by Sarah Bellier, audio editing by Jamie Gownlock, and music by Parma Violence. If you have any questions, feel free to drop us a line at info at techmanchester.co.uk or follow us on any of our social channels. Twitter, Instagram, Facebook and LinkedIn, all under Tech Manchester. Tech Manchester.